0: Uh, Let me pray for us, and we'll dive in. Father, um, again, it is so good to even call you that, to address you as Father, because that means something for us as sons, to even utter that word to you in your presence, and to do so with confidence, we recognize does not come from us. We who are once orphans, we who once even chose our orphanhood that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place in order that we could be sons and call you Father. And so this morning, as we think about your love for us as a Father and the love of Christ for us as the Son and as the Bridegroom who pursues us faithfully, even when we are a faithless bride, I pray especially for us as men as we look at the topic of love that you would open wide our hearts and that we would get a greater glimpse of the great love that you have for us. And that that would change us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, again, Hosea 3 is where we're going to be. Here's where I, how I want to begin. Um, some of you are uh, familiar with Eugene Peterson. Uh, a longtime uh, fan of Eugene Peterson. Uh, Eugene, uh, his writings have been uh, hugely influential in my life. Uh, he passed away a, a little over two weeks ago, October 22nd, 2018. He was 85. He was a Presbyterian pastor, a Bible scholar. He was an author. He was a poet. He's most famous probably for the translation. It's a paraphrase of the Bible called The Message. Um, he has written though 30, over 30 books. Uh, my favorite, the Long Obedience, um, in the same direction about discipleship, um, his work uh, not only has meant much to me, but I mean, literally millions of Christians, including Bono, by the way. Bono from U2, a uh, huge Eugene Peterson fan. If you ever uh, get bored at some point today, just Google Bono and Eugene Peterson. There's a 20 minute film about their friendship, and it's pretty cool. Uh, Eugene Peterson, when Bono first reached out to him, he had no idea who he was and just turned him down. Uh, and this is a great little line. Um, you know, he's being interviewed on stage about something. Um, and he, he, at that point, when Bono had reached out to him, he was trying to finish the message. And uh, he had did the New Testament first, and he was now working on the Old Testament. And I know those of you who've grown up in church some, you know this. And even if you haven't, I think you, if you look at just the Bible, the Old Testament's bigger <laughs> by a whole lot than the New Testament and has took him a long time to translate. And so this man was like, "Hey, you know, Eugene, you might be the only person on the planet who has ever turned down Bono for lunch." And he looked at him, and he said, "Yeah, but it was Isaiah. Um, it's just so funny." And he's dead serious. You know, look, I had to, I had to, I had to finish Isaiah. You know, um, his funeral was this last Saturday, and he had um, some boys, some sons. One of his sons, uh, his name is Eric. He's also, a Presbyterian pastor. And his other son, his name is Leif. I want you to hear what Leif said about his dad at his funeral. This is what he said He said, My dad only had one sermon. He fooled everyone for 29 years of pastoral ministry. And in all his books, he only had one message. It was a secret, he said. That his dad let him in on early in life. It was a message that Leif said his dad whispered into his heart for 50 years, words that he snuck into his room to say over him as he slept as a child. Here's the message. I want you to listen God loves you, God is on your side, He is coming after you, He is relentless. One message. Every sermon, every book, Leif said his dad really had only one thing to say in lots of different ways. God loves you. He is on your side. He's coming after you. He is relentless. It's his only message because it is the message. It's the message of the Bible. It's the message of the gospel. And for us this morning, it's the message of Hosea of a tall task, I think, and we do too as well as we dive into this, that as men, the idea of love is sometimes a hard topic for us to really wrestle with. It shouldn't be that way, but I think sometimes we hide behind this kind of masculine exterior. And not only the love of God is something we're going to talk about, but one of the greatest themes of the Bible, which is this, that God has sent his son as a bridegroom, who is a faithful husband, to pursue us as a faithless bride. To think of yourself, men, as a bride this morning is going to be difficult. Right? It's it's not natural to us. But I would argue that you cannot understand the gospel without understanding God's love for you you cannot understand just how faithful he is without understanding how God has pursued you faithfully in the same way that a husband pursues a bride. And we get all of that in the book of Hosea. So I want you to look at Hosea chapter 3. We're going to look at the love of God in three ways. The first way I want to look at it is this, the love of God is covenantal. The love of God is covenantal. I want you to look at verse 1. Hosea 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, so this is Hosea speaking. The Lord said to me, go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Hosea. Hosea is in the Minor Prophets. The Minor Prophets might not be your kind of go-to quiet time material. And I recognize that, and that's okay. And so let me give you just a little bit of background about Hosea. Hosea is a prophet. If you think about the role of prophets and what their job was, they were to speak on behalf of God. That is their job. Uh, Especially at a time when there wasn't one of these right? Certainly they had scrolls and there were readings in the temple, but they didn't have one of these in every, in every hand. God gave prophets to speak on his behalf. Hosea is the only one who is different. God did not tell Hosea just to speak on his behalf. God told Hosea to live and that his life would be a living prophecy. What did he command Hosea to do? He said, Hosea, Rather than just speak prophecy, I want you to live prophecy, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to go marry a whore. I want you to go marry an adulterous woman, a prostitute. She has been unfaithful all her life, and guess what, Hosea? After you get married to her, she's going to remain unfaithful even to you. I'm telling you this now. You're going to have children with her. The first will be yours. The other two we're not so sure whose they are. They won't be yours, but you need to raise them anyways. And as faithless as she's going to be towards you, you need to meet that with faithfulness. You need to love her and pursue her. That's what's happening here in Hosea 3, verse 1. This is after Hosea 1, verse 2. You can turn there if you want, or you can just listen. I want you to listen how graphic this language is. The Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Hosea was commanded by God to go and marry a wife of whoredom. Her name was Gomer. And that three chapters later, his wife has found herself now back into a life of whoredom. And God says, go after her again, Hosea. Pursue her again, Hosea. Don't leave her alone, Hosea. Don't just let her go, but be relentless with your love. Love her until the bitter end. Why? Why? What is all of this about? What is going on here? God loves us covenantally. When we say that, when you look through, especially the Hebrew scriptures, and you look at the word love, a lot of times what you find translated throughout your Old Testament is the idea of unfailing love or never-ending love. The word is hesed in Hebrew. It's hard to translate, hard to really grapple with in English, but it's the kind of never giving up, never stopping, faithful love. It's covenantal love. It's love that's unconditional, without condition. It's the kind of love that says, I'm going to love you even if you fail to love me. I'm going to love you even if you turn your back on me. I'm going to be faithful even if you are going to be faithless towards me. It's covenantal love. You cannot understand Hosea without understanding covenant. I would say you really can't understand the Bible without understanding covenant. Okay, so what's a covenant? What's a covenant? Uh, Best definition I've ever heard, and you've heard me talk about this before, O. Palmer Robertson. If you have time, best book you could ever read on the covenants, Christ of the Covenants. It really changed my theology back when I read it in college. Christ the Covenants, O. Palmer Robertson defines it this way. It's a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. Right? It's a promise in blood to death, sovereignly administered by God. And the idea of covenant for us is difficult. We've talked about this before, if you've been in this study. Because so often the way we operate, we operate contractually. We do that in business. We make contracts with people, and if those contracts get broken by the other party, then that contract becomes null and void. We even treat marriage that way. That's how we think about marriage today, especially in the West. It's contractual. And so if you fail to love me as my spouse, then this contract is now void, and we can just get a divorce. But that is not how God sees us. It's not contractual. It's covenantal. Because the truth is, is you and I break our contract with God every single day, do we not? And can you imagine how God would, if he were to treat us the way that we treat business, (laughs) or to treat us even the way that sometimes we treat marriage? And then he would have divorced us a long time ago. You see, you and I, if you are married this morning, you have made a covenant. You've made a covenant. You stood before God and made vows. You did so till death do us part in blood, and he did so before God. It's sovereignly administered. And so it shouldn't surprise us that throughout the Bible, the metaphor, the picture, the image that God uses to describe his love for us as his people is like a marriage. You could say that the Bible is really one story from Genesis to Revelation about a marriage. Not a marriage between a husband and a wife, but a marriage between God and his people. That he loves us covenantally. He's made a vow. And even though we break our marriage vows every single day to him, God has not broken his marriage vow to us. Not only is the image then, if God loves us covenantally, if this is like a marriage between us and him, if that is the metaphor that the Bible uses, then it makes sense that the metaphor, the image of sin that is used most often in the Old Testament is not that it's just immoral, not that we're just breaking commands, but it's described as adultery. Again, think about how graphic this language is. Go Hosea and marry a wife of whoredom. Why? why would god ask hosea to marry a woman named gomer who is adulterous who is a who is a woman of whoredom who is a prostitute why would he ask hosea to do that because that's who we are you and i are gomer we are adulterous we have forsaken our marriage vows to God every single day, every sin that we commit, every God that we worship instead of Him, it's like committing adultery. I want you to hear this. Again, it's graphic, Jeremiah 5, verse 7. God says through the prophet Jeremiah, How can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are no gods. When I led them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the houses of whores. It's graphic language. He's saying that every time that we worship some other thing other than God, we do it every day. Right? Idolatry is we make even a good thing and make it into a God thing and worship it. We, we can worship success. We can worship money. We can worship our jobs. We can even worship our families and our friends. We can worship being well-liked by others. So many things that we can turn to other than God. We can even worship our sin. And God is saying, that is, that is adultery. It is as if we are trooping to the houses of whores rather than coming into the relationship that God has for us in him, understanding that he loves us in the same way that a husband loves a bride. For us as men, and the challenge for you at your tables as we try to apply this, is what does it look like to think of us as a bride? What does it look like for you as a man to see yourself as the one who's being pursued? What does it look like for you as a man, not to be the one who's always trying to just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and love somebody else, but what does it look like for you to receive love from somebody else? Have you allowed yourself to be loved fully by God? Have you allowed him to love you the way that he has loved you from the very beginning? How has he done that? second way I want to think about this today The love of God is sacrificial. I want you to look at verse 2. Hosea 3, verse 2. So this is what Hosea does with Gomer. He says, so I bought her. Uh, Let that sink in for just a second. For Hosea to buy his wife means that he had to buy his wife. So where is she at this point? I want you to think about that. What would have put him in the position where he had to have actually physically put money forward To buy his wife. Again, this is a woman who has a a history of prostitution. And here he is. The image I have is he's going into a brothel. (laughs) And he's saying, That one is mine. She is my beloved. She is my wife. And I'm paying for her. I'm going to buy her back how much did he pay? So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. 15 shekels of silver is pretty straightforward. That's 15 shekels. A homer and a lethic of barley was worth also about 15 shekels. That's 30 shekels of silver. 30 shekels of silver in those days was the price for a dead slave, to buy back a dead slave. That's what she was worth in some ways you could say that's not worth a whole lot and that's true but she was worth a whole lot to Hosea but other ways you can think about start thinking about the idea of 30 shekels of silver in your mind if you know the story of the scriptures the story of the gospels 30 shekels 30 pieces 30 pieces of silver who cost 30 pieces of silver. Well, that was the price that Judas had for Jesus. 30 pieces of silver is what he sold him out for, to go to the cross. How much are you worth? How much are you worth in the eyes of God? How do you think God sees you? If his son is worth 30 pieces of silver, (laughs) how much are you worth? I want you to hear this This is good news for us, 1 Peter 1, verse 18. Know this, you were ransomed from the fetal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with this precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Brothers, this is what I I desperately want to sink deep in your souls this morning. It's what I want to sink deep into me. You are not worth 30 pieces of silver. You are worth the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That is what he has paid for you. (laughs) It's priceless. Why? Why did he spill his blood for you and me? Why did he give up his life for you and me? Why? There's a great, I think, a misunderstanding when it comes to the love of God and the gospel. I think so often we imagine God as being so unpleased with us, with such vitriol and hate towards us because of our sin. And it was out of his hatred that he sent Jesus. And because Jesus died for us, now he loves us. Because Jesus died for us, now God loves us. But that is not what the Bible describes as the gospel. No, God does not love you because Jesus Christ died for you. Jesus Christ died for you because God already loved you. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as sons. He loved you first. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ. He loved us first. It is out of his love for you that he sent his son to die as a sacrifice for your sins. This is what John talks about in his letter. 1 John 4, he says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. A couple things I want you to notice about that. The gospel is not, we love God, and so therefore He loves us back. It's the exact opposite. The gospel is, God loved us first. And in response, he is making us, transforming us, giving us the ability to love him in return. He loved us so much, though, John says. He doesn't stop there. He says that he sent Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. What does that mean? What does the word propitiation mean? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. He sent his son out of his love to be a sacrificial death for you. And he did all of this while you were just like Gomer. While you were an adulterer. While you were unlovely. He's doing it now. There is nothing you can do to get in the way of God's love for you. That's not my words. It's the words of Apostle Paul in Romans 8. Right? Nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So where does this all end? I want you to see this. The love of God is transformative. I want to look at verses 3, 4, and 5. Notice what it says here. It says, and I said to her. This is Hosea speaking to Gomer. He's bought her back, bought her out of prostitution. He says, I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore Or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. It's a promise. A promise of his faithfulness to her, so I will also be to you, but it's a promise of what he wants her to be. You see, the love of God doesn't just leave us here in our muck. It doesn't just leave us here as sinful, but it changes us. It transforms us. It makes us new. A great quote, one of my favorites. This is from St. Augustine. He said, In loving me, O Lord, you have made me lovable. In loving me, you have made me lovable. It's because of the love of God that we become lovable. It transforms us. It changes us from the inside out. Hosea's love for Gomer is transforming her. She's no longer going to play the whore. She's no longer going to live a life of adultery. She's going to be faithful. Why? This is what Hosea tells us, verses four and five. What does this mean for us as God's people? Verse four: For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. What is he doing? He's just naming the different things that Israel has loved instead of God. (laughs) They've loved kings instead of God, they've loved princes instead of God. They've loved other sacrifices that are wrongful instead of God. Pillars, right? Stone statues of other gods, ephod or household gods, all the idols, all the things that you have pursued, you are going to live without them as my people. For us, brothers, we must recognize that the love of God compels us. It's the kindness of the Lord, the love of the Lord that leads us to repentance. It should change us. It should transform us. It should make us new. There is a difference between moral reformation and gospel transformation. And the difference, I would argue, has to do with your understanding of God's love for you. Moral reformation says, I need to clean up my act. Moral reformation says, I need to look at my morality... And I need to now be different. And I need to make myself different. Why? Because if I make myself different, then God will love me. If I clean up my act, then God will love me. Gospel transformation says God already loves me. And because he loves me, he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for me. Not only so that I could get to heaven, but now he's given me the Holy Spirit. And he's transforming me. He's changing me. He's sanctifying me. And now each and every day I live knowing this, that I have been bought with a price. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me. The last verse, verse 5, says this. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God, and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So after a time when the people of God have turned from their idols and returned to the love of their father, it says that they will seek the Lord their God and David their king. Here's what you need to know. And the prophets, minor po- prophets in particular, but really all the prophets, anytime you see David mentioned, he's not talking about David, the king who lived way back when. He's talking about the second David. David. Every prophet, every time it's mentioned about this David to come, he's talking about David's son, a king in the Davidic line, someone who'd be related to David, who is yet to come, a promised king, a king who would be many sons and grandsons removed from David, the second David, David's greater son, Jesus Christ. And so here when we see David, their king, he's not talking about King David. He's talking about the David that is to come. They shall seek and return the Lord their God and this second David, this king in the Davidic line. They shall come to fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. All of this is looking forward to a day when God will unite us fully to himself when he will change us so much that we could honestly say that we don't have any other gods other than him. That we have now been a faithful bride. But this side of heaven, we just, we're just anticipating that. But when that day comes, this is what it's going to look like and it's where we're going to end. I want to first start in Hosea chapter 2 and then we're going to end in Revelation 21. Hosea chapter 2 is not on your sheet. You can turn there or you, you can Listen. <coughs> What will that day look like? Hosea tells us. Hosea 2 verse 16. In that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from their mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. I will make them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground and I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land and I will make you lay down in safety. I want you to hear this. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. These are God's marriage vows to you, brothers. This is his marriage vow to you. I will betroth you to me. I will betroth you to me in justice and in righteousness and in faithfulness. And you will know no other God but me. Until that day comes, know this. You will be faithless. You will play the whore. You will cheat on me time and time again. Yet just like Hosea, I'm going to be faithful. And just like Hosea, I'm going to buy you out of slavery. Not for 30 pieces of silver, but the precious blood of Jesus Christ, who is the truer and greater Hosea. Right? He is the Hosea, the husband, the bridegroom that has come for us as a bride, he's coming after you and he's relentless. And so, this is the promise that we we're given in Revelation 21. It's there on your sheet where we're going to end. That one day when Christ comes again, he will come as a bridegroom coming for his bride. I want you to hear the words of John Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven, the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither will there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said... Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is what is trustworthy. This is what is true. As you find yourself, as you go from here, lured by so many other gods to love them other than him, or as you go from here and you wonder, because of whatever sin that is constantly entangling you, causing you to live in such shame, making you to question God's love for you. Remember this, it's trustworthy and it's true, that God loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you on the cross, and one day his son is going to come again. And he's coming for you relentlessly as a bridegroom pursuing his bride. You are his bride. Brother, he loves you, and he will stop at nothing to get you back. Let me pray for you and send you to your table. Father, help us to know this love for us. In so many ways, it's counterintuitive. Counterintuitive for us because we, um, it's so easy for us to hide behind our masculinity, to think that the topic of love is just not for us. It's certainly for women, but not for us. Or it's hard for us because we've never really been able to open ourselves up to be loved. Perhaps because we were never loved well when we were little, when we were sons. Our Father, perhaps it's hard for us because we do live in shame this morning. There could be some here that feel like they're unlovable. And so Father, I pray that you would give us a vision of your unconditional love for us. It's counterintuitive because it's gracious. We feel like we have to earn it. We feel like we have to make ourselves different, to make ourselves lovely. But help us to see that you loved us first. And out of your love, you have pursued us and that your love is covenantal and it's relentless. And we pray, Father, that ultimately this love would transform us, that it would change us, that it would, as Revelation 21 promises, that it would make us new by the power of the cross, And in the indwelling Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.